Okay. Right, good morning, everyone. You all feeling good? Warm? No? Okay. All right. It doesn't matter. You know, a lot of people listen to the Word of God in worse situations than this, and they appreciate it, and it still brings encouragement um, and sustenance to them. So um, while everyone's coming to sit down, I think I'll just go through a quick introduction. So um, many of you will have noticed that Becky and myself haven't been in church very much over the last few weeks. Still booming. There we go. Um, and the reason is we've had a really big time of celebration over January. It's my birthday. Um, it's Isaac's birthday. Um, no, it's not a big one, 44. Uh, but we did have a big anniversary. Um, it was Becky and Maya's 20th anniversary. And as far as I know, most couples only have one of those in their lifetime. So I thought I'd make a, a big deal of it and, and celebrate that in style. So... Um, what we did was I took Becky, we surprised her, I booked tickets on a train to Edinburgh. She's always wanted to go to Edinburgh and she loves being on a train. As far as she's concerned, the best thing to do on holiday is to sit in a train with a book and watch the world go by as you're getting to your destination. So, so we did that. We went off to Edinburgh um, and it was great. We, we found some fun little spots. We, uh, we found a couple of restaurants that we could go to and we could afford to eat at because it was just Becky and I rather than the three kids plus Becky and I. And, you know, that's, it doesn't matter what economy you're in, three kids always makes things expensive. Um, so we found these little spots. Um, we went and we had a ridiculous breakfast with haggis and potato bread and then I only had lunch at four. Um, after that, we, we climbed Arthur's Seat, we walked the Royal Mile, we took a little train to North Berwick and we walked along the beach in the blasting North Sea wind um, and enjoyed looking at the islands where all the birds roost and all of that sort of thing. We went to watch a movie after dinner that ended at midnight and then we walked back to a hotel and we went to bed and we woke up when we wanted to without interruption it was absolutely amazing. So I'd suggest that for anybody. For a 20th wedding anniversary, Edinburgh's the place. Um, so it was brilliant. But while we were on the train, on the way up there, Becky was getting wires on social media. So she, she asked for some suggestions on things to do while we were there. And we were thinking kind of like honeymoony couples things. But a friend of mine in Port Elizabeth um, put in there that we've got to go to St. Giles Cathedral and John Knox House. And you're like, okay, well, that's the kind of thing he loves to do. If he could spend all of his days reading old books and being in old churches, that's what he would do on honeymoon. Uh, yeah, that's what he'd do. Um, not necessarily me, but I thought, okay, fine. We'll, we'll go and we'll, we'll have a look around St. Giles Cathedral. So we did that. And we walked past John Locke's house, and I, I pointed at it with Becky, but we didn't go in. But the bottom line is, it still got me thinking, remembering this, this great reformer, John Knox, and, and what he did for Scotland. And some of you may not have a clue who John Knox is, but for others, you may know him as the man that made Mary, Queen of Scots, cry. Um, in fact, he, uh, he made her cry because he didn't much approve of her marriage to a Spanish Catholic. Um, he didn't go and tell her about it. He preached about it in St. Giles Cathedral. 
Um, so she was nonplussed, basically, about that. So I need to say this. He made her cry, and he wasn't arrested and hung for treason. Now, that's quite an achievement. In fact, um, he spent quite a few times in her chambers, called in on at least three occasions because of things he'd said in public about Mary and um, things that he didn't approve of about what she was doing. And on one of those occasions, I mean, this guy, he, he was a straight talker. He, um, he says to her, she's having an argument with him about something he's, he's talking about with Catholicism and Protestantism and, and something about justice. I can't remember the exact details, but the bottom line is he comes out and he says to her, the sword of justice is God's. And if princes and rulers fail to use it, others may. Now, even in today's political circles, that kind of statement could get you in a lot of trouble. Um, so he was a straight talk, and again, he walked out not arrested and not hung for treason. John studied theology at St. Andrew's University and was ordained in the, the Catholic Church, um, but he was, he was drawn into the Reformation cause by, by two Scottish reformers, one of whom, who he was assisting, was executed and at that time, John had to flee into exile. He, he spent a bit of time in Geneva and a bit of time in Frankfurt. While he was in Geneva, he met John Calvin, and, and he was amazed by the work there. He commented that it was the most perfect school of Christ that was ever on earth since the days of the apostles. So he really liked what he saw in Geneva. I think that's the point that's made there. Um, and you see, the interesting thing was, I think, for us, we look back at the Reformers as theological Reformers, but they were, they were as concerned with social reform as they were with, with the, the correction of the theology of the church. They cared deeply about how the gospel affected society. And I know that's the kind of language that we love to use at Real Life Church. We love to talk about the gospel not just being something that affects us personally, but something that affects the world around us and changes it. And, and John Knox saw that in Geneva under John Calvin. Anyway, he was called back to Scotland and he established what would become the Presbyterian Church. He was known as a fiery preacher who was not afraid to stand firmly against authorities if they seemed to be pushing against the will of God. And remarkably, he died of natural causes. Uh, he was a strong man whose heart was converted by the gospel, and he was willing to put his reputation and his well-being on the line for it. More than that, he didn't shy away from those who were in authority, and the reason he didn't shy away from them is because he understood that he was under a higher authority than them. And I guess in this room and around the world, opinions will vary about the man, um, and he was a mixed bag, but everyone would agree that he was a man of conviction and courage and that he understood that he was engaged in a war. And that the stakes of this war were very high indeed. So we'll come back to John Knox in a moment, but right now what we need to do is we need to read about another man of war who understood that he was under a higher authority. Um, so we're going to spend a little bit of time in Joshua. It's, it's quite a read, so settle in, get your Bibles out. It's Joshua 10. We'll be starting in verse 16, and we'll be reading through to verse 43. So, Lord, we just ask that as we open your word, that, 
that you will help us to, to submit ourselves. Holy Spirit, that you'll allow us to yield ourselves to the authority of your word in our lives. And Holy Spirit, that you'll open up each and every word so that it speaks to us personally. So we don't just look at it as historical or about Israel or about other people, but we'll start hearing your voice through your word for us in this, on this day. In your name. Amen. Okay. Starting in verse 16 then. Now, the five kings had fled and hidden in a cave at Machedar. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Machedar, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely, but a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Machedar, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to them, and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. When Joshua put, then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Machedar. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors, and he did to the king of Machedar as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Machedar to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord gave Lachish into Israel's hands, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Giza, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Lachish to Eglon. 
They took up positions against it and attacked it. They captured it that same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Deba. They took the city, its king, and its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Deba and its king, as they had done to Libna and its king, and to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Okay, so we have been having a brilliant time following, I I guess you could call them, the adventures of of Israel as they take Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Um, But what I need to do quickly is remind you um, that before Israel crossed the Jordan, they'd spent 40 years in the desert. And a quick look at a map will tell you that it doesn't take 40 years to cross that desert. It takes a a few days. Um, And the reason they were in that desert for 40 years was not because God couldn't find his way. It was because of the rebelliousness in their hearts. A whole generation died away and never entered the promised land because God is just and could not allow their rebellion to go unpunished. Not even Moses could enter the promised land because he put himself in the position of God. But God is also faithful to his promises. And the new generation of Israel was given this massive privilege of of entering Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And it's important that we see that and look at it for for a moment because these remarkable victories of the Israelites are down to two things. They're down to their yielded hearts to God. They made mistakes. We've, we've seen those. And they've had setbacks, but their hearts are yielded to God. And Joshua has been very careful to, to obey the commandments of God. And secondly, God is fighting for Israel. He is on their side. And Joshua is being a really good leader. He's really letting the people see that and know that. They are encouraged And they're emboldened because God is for us. So who can be against us? I think you also need to remember um, that the battles in Joshua have been punctuated by these times of retreat. Not retreat from the enemy, but retreat towards God. Um, 
that there was the laying of the stones in the Jordan and on the Canaan side of the Jordan as they crossed the Jordan. There was the circumcision before Jericho. Remember that completely nuts idea of um, circumcising all of your fighting men before going and taking a massive city. Um, There was that retreat. There was the altar that we heard about that was set up on Mount Ebal and all of Israel being involved in, in that. So throughout Joshua, what we've seen and what I want to remind us of is that more important than military strategy is their submission to God's ways and acting in obedience to His voice. Now, just before this text, we'll remember that God had again fought for Israel. Israel had answered the call of Gibeon. They'd made an alliance with them. They were conned into that alliance with Gibeon, but they were faithful to it, and they answered the call to defend Gibeon as they were being attacked by an alliance of five city-states. So they answered that, and they were substantially outnumbered as they went in to attack these five city-state armies. But remember, God threw those armies into confusion. He pelted them with hailstones, and he decimated their troops. The the text says that he, he killed more of those armies than the Israelite army killed. Um, And then he did this remarkable thing that that we we see is emphasized, that for the first time, and from the author's point of view, never had this happened before and never had it happened again, but God listened to Joshua when he commanded the moon and the sun to stand still so that they would have enough time to clean up that retreating army and make sure that it wasn't held up by them getting behind the walls of their cities. This was a small victory for God, but a massive victory for Israel. And now we hear what happens in this text to those five kings that led their people in rebellion against the God of Israel. So when the five saw that thing, how things were going, um, they decided to hide in a cave. Now, Maybe they didn't know the area so well. Maybe they didn't realize that this wasn't the best hiding place, but Joshua found out about it. So he heard about the cave, and, um, and instead of being distracted by them, what he does is he orders his men to go and block up the opening of the cave so that they can't go anywhere, but not to stop, to continue to pursue um, the retreating armies. He knows that the battle needs to be completed in the open. If the enemy gets behind the city walls, it'll draw the whole thing out. So they chase them down and they defeat them, except for a few stragglers. And then they return to Joshua at Machedar. Now, two important things I want to pull out for you out of this little section is, um, firstly, Joshua tells his men to pursue the enemy because God has given them into their hands. This is a consistent message And it instills confidence in the people of Israel. And it's important for us today. Don't pursue something unless God has given it into your hands. They are following the will of God. God has already secured the victory now. It's already done. He's given them into your hands. So now you need to go out and have the victory. Because He's secured it. It's as good as done. Secondly, I just wanted to reinforce for you that not one member... Not one member of the Israelite army was harmed in this confrontation. They all returned safely to Joshua, the word says. And then we're told after that that no one 
uttered a word against Israel. If you go into the original uh, language, the intimation is that not even a dog barked at one person in Israel. They were very, very, very safe and secure. Remember, God's promise wasn't just that they would inherit the land, but that they would be at rest in the land, that they would be safe, that they would be secure, that they would be at peace. Right, so then Joshua calls for the five kings, Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And he summons his men, and he asks his commanders to put their feet on the necks of the kings. So just imagine it. There are these five kings laid out on the ground, and they've got the commanders of the Israelite armies standing with their feet on the necks of these kings. I can't think of a more demeaning thing for those kings at that point in time. And the truth is that was a fairly common practice for, for kings in the Near East to do. And, I, I mean, if you go to a, a museum, you'll see Renaissance paintings of kings standing on dragons, kings standing on any enemy that they've defeated. It was fairly common, and it's a message of um, who has power over life and death. It's, it's, it's a message of subjugation and, and saying that I have the ultimate victory in this this war. Um, But what's interesting here is that that Joshua gets his commanders to stand on their necks. He's, he's in a sense, foreshadowing um, something of Christ and his people at the very end of the age, when God will have placed all of his enemies under Christ's feet, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. At that time, we are told that his people are called co-heirs with Christ, who will rule and reign with him. When his enemies become his footstool, he shares that victory with his people, which is very different to the picture of the kings of, of the Near East. And while they have their feet on the necks of these kings, Joshua reminds them, of the words of God right at the beginning when he was called to lead Israel into Canaan. He says to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. He looks back and he says, you now have five examples. Sorry, you have three. You have three examples of what God is doing for us. He's promised to do the same thing to all the enemies that you need to fight. Every single one. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. And then the text is really quick about this. It's basically that the kings are summarily dispatched by Joshua. And they hang on poles to remind the nations that they are cursed. But even at this point, Joshua does not forget the law of God, and he takes them down at sunset. And they're thrown back into the cave where they were hiding, which is a little bit ironic. And, um, and then once again, that cave is covered up by rocks, and the, the author goes on to say that those rocks are there to this day, in the same way as he speaks about the rocks at the bank of the Jordan River. And um, it's a reminder 
It's an altar. It's a reminder to Israel, like every time they've placed rocks in piles, of the goodness of their God. A little bit like communion and baptism is for us a constant reminder of the source of our freedom and our victory. It's never your victory. It's His victory. So at this point, things go completely insane. It's almost like we get to zoom out as Israel goes on the rampage. There's, there's no need for detail anymore. It's, that time has passed. We've got these three examples of what happens to those that are against God, and now those things happen to six cities in quick succession. And then we move back a little bit further and we get a brief overview at the very end of the passage that makes it clear that it wasn't just those six cities that suffered at the hand of Israel, but the whole southern region of Canaan. And the section ends with this. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Fought for Israel. A quick point about the emphasis being one campaign. The army didn't return to Gilgal twice. For those of you that are taking notes between last week and this week, you'll notice that they returned to Gilgal as a phrase, twice. They didn't return to Gilgal twice. That is almost a frame of this is one account of what happened in this campaign, and now we're reading another account of what happened in this campaign. It was one campaign. I'm not saying it was one day. But Israel went out on one campaign and routed the whole of the south of Canaan. When they went out to defend Gibeon, this is, when we get to the end of this text, it's the end of that story about defending Gibeon. Things are going well for Israel. That's, I think, the, 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 the bottom line story that we've, we've got here. They're going really well for Israel. They weren't perfect, but they were yielded to God. They were very different to the rebellious people who lived in the desert, who looked back to Egypt with regret and weren't happy with God's provision and were constantly moaning and making Moses' life a complete misery. And the truth is, I feel bad for Moses not being able to enter the promised land because he was so frustrated with them when they were just moaning and whining the whole time. Great, let them all die off. They're a bunch of pains. But Moses was frustrated with them. God says to him, speak to the rock and water will come from it. And Moses in his frustration hits the rock like had happened last time. And God's like, you didn't do what I said. So you're not entering in either. I do feel bad for Moses. But the bottom line is that whole generation was rebellious, and they were not satisfied with God's provision. It was going well with Israel now because they knew God's will. They were versed in the Scriptures, but not just versed. They were willing to do what He commands. If you think about the Mount, Mount Ebal account again, they were willing to do what He commands regardless of what sense it made militarily. The wasn't a military campaign first and foremost. They made mistakes. They made this deal with Gibeon because they didn't consult God. There was sin in the camp at Ai and that cost them. And in this reading, they didn't completely rout the Amorites. As we see, there were, were some that, that escaped and that was God's command that they would completely rout them. But they were now pursuing God's will, not their own. 
And there's a lesson for us here. It will go well for us when we know God's will, when our rebellious hearts are aligned to His desires and we are willing to do what He has commanded. Sometimes I think we like a people. We like talking about a river, a river of God's blessing, and we like a people that jump into this powerful river. And then we look up and we see this magnificent oasis, but the oasis is upstream, and the river's taking us downstream, and we get frustrated and irritated with the river because it's taking us away from the wonderful oasis that we want to be at. And so we we swim against it in frustration, and we, we try to get to this oasis, but the truth is it's never going to happen. This river's taking us to another destination, and we don't necessarily always get to see 100% what that destination looks like. It's maybe around the corner. We tithe, and then we get angry because we don't have the car that we've always dreamed of. We dedicate our children to God and then lament when they can't get into the school that we expect them to get into. I can go for, there's many examples. Maybe obedience means that we jump in the river and trust that it will take us in the direction that we're meant to go rather than the direction that we would like to go. Obeying God means yielding ourselves at the end of the day. It means surrendering your own will, your own desires. And this is massive. I know this is massive, especially for us independent Westerners who think that we're autonomous and no one tells us what to do. I mean, you know, look what happened to King Charles. No one tells us what to do. We'll put a parliament in place. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, I'll shut up now. Um... But obeying God means yielding ourselves. He's given us His Word, and He's given us His Spirit. And the truth is, if we're to know His will, we are to be reading His Word. Don't tell me that you don't read the Bible, but you know what God's will is for you. You're wrong. And you have no idea how you can prove that what you believe is true or not. You need to be in His Word. And you need the Holy Spirit guiding you. So you need to be praying regularly if you're to know His will and to come to a place where you can trust that He's taking you in the right direction, even though He doesn't show you the, 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 the final destination in total clarity. So if you're going to be obedient, you need to be in His Word. We've been talking about that for weeks. This is what we're doing this year. Um, I've made it through Leviticus. So, you know, that's like, I get an extra badge for that. But I'm right into numbers now. Um, And it's as tricky. These are two tricky books. But we, and I'll be honest with you, I started last year. I didn't start at the beginning of this year. But I'm not going to start again, just because we've said start in January. But um, Leviticus was tricky. It was challenging. I mean, I know what it's about, but... It's a challenging book to get through, Um, but you need to know it. Do you know that um, young Jewish boys at the time of Christ, they'd know the whole first five books of the Bible by the time they were in primary school, off by heart. They could recite it. 
That's how important the Word of God was to the people of Israel. And that's how important the Word of God should be to us, regardless of your preference. And we've got a lot of technological ways of helping us with the Word of God today that they never had. So let's not put off what we know is important because it doesn't necessarily gel with us. So I hope many of you are in the Word, that you're enjoying it, that you're persevering through some of the tricky parts, but you're looking for the gold in there and you're asking God to show you why on earth He put those words in this book for us to read today. It's really important. The word about the gospel and the reason I spoke about John Knox earlier. I think we can be tempted to look at this whole book of Joshua and think, oh my word, I am so happy that God is not like this anymore. I'm so happy that he doesn't deal with people in the same way today as he did then. But the truth is, we run the risk of forgetting that we're actually in a war right now, and that it's not an abstract war. It's a war where life and death are in the balance. And you see, John Knox understood that. He understood that there was a fate that was worse than death. And that faith is to be eternally separated from the presence of God. Nothing was more important to him than being able to stay in the presence of God. So death was nothing. He knew that he had a choice. He could keep quiet and stay safe, and we have this choice. We could keep quiet and stay safe with the knowledge that many, for him, would never hear the gospel and will never be rescued from this judgment of of being completely separated from God for eternity. Or he could risk the wrath of the queen and of Rome, but know that even his death will not separate him from his Savior, and that many more will be able to join him in God's presence. And he chose to fight. And I know each and every one of us have this crisis daily. Do we shut up and stay safe? Or do we open our mouths and put our reputation on the line? And my challenge to you today is we have a sword. The Word of God is called a sword. And we often speak about it in the positive. You know, the, the gospel is the power unto salvation. It, it awakens men's hearts. It opens the eyes of the blind It brings peace and joy and life. That's the way we like to speak about it. And all of that is true. But the Bible also says of itself that it, to some, it brings wrath. It brings hatred. It brings fear. It says that it brings the stench of death. So you see, the sword of the word, when used effectively by God's people, when they are obedient and they yield it, Um, it forces a decision. A decision that may never have been considered or, or possibly is conveniently avoided. It forces people to take a side. And for those that choose to believe, it is a sweet aroma. It brings life. It changes their, 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 their view of the world. And many of you can testify to that. But for others, it brings damnation. 
And I think we know that. I don't think we, we, we're ignorant of that. I just think that sometimes we don't want to share the gospel because we're afraid of the response, that that response may be a rejection of it, and that the consequences of that are too horrible to contemplate. But please, if we avoid sharing the gospel to avoid it being rejected, we are also denying people the opportunity to accept it. It's for us to yield the sword rightly. That's our job. When we do, the sword does its work, and some will choose life and others will choose death. That's the truth. We're in a war. Now, I know some of you have heard the quote from St. Francis of Assisi that says, um, preach the gospel through all means necessary and through all means, and if necessary, use words. Can I just make it clear that St. Francis of Assisi never said that? Never, ever, ever. I don't know where it came from, but St. Francis never said that. Worse than that, that is just completely contrary to what the Bible says about itself. It's contrary to Jesus' teaching. It's contrary to Paul's teaching. It's contrary to all of the teaching that we hold dear. The truth is we should be living a life, and our acts should be preaching the gospel in a way that, um, that is different to other people on earth. We should be doing a lot of good stuff that changes society, just like John Calvin was uh, looking after in Geneva and like John Knox wanted to see in Scotland. But if we don't use words, you're not giving anybody the opportunity to see the reason why you are different is because of Jesus Christ has changed your life. All they see is a do-gooder. You're never giving them the opportunity to meet the Creator, the one that brings them true freedom, the one that can do way more than any program or any of our professionals would be able to give them. So my second challenge to you is to use your sword. Quick word about God's sovereignty in this text. Joshua takes the five kings and he asks his commanders to place their feet on their necks. As I say, this is interesting um, because he's given it to his commanders to do. And he tells them what God told him to not be afraid, to not be discouraged, to be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. You see, God promises that he will make Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. He promises that. And Christ promises us that we will rule and reign with him through all eternity. He shares his victory with us. And when he says the victory is his, it is as good as done. He's sovereign. The Bible tells us that his plans are never frustrated. I've heard some people talk about Jesus, and it sounds like he's a plan B. You know, like God created Adam and Eve, and they botched it up in the garden, and then he tried to fix that, um, and then it was botched up again, and Noah is the new seed, and then that gets botched up, and all of a sudden there's Abraham, and then they 
that's a mess. And then Moses and the law is like the final deal. And that gets completely messed up. And then God has to send Jesus to fix everything. But that's not the way the Bible reads. God's plans are never frustrated. He knew the day that creation happened, how it would end. It's not for us to know how that works, because it'll drive you insane, but his plans are never frustrated. That's what it means to be sovereign, as God is sovereign. And that's an encouragement to us, because his promises will never be broken. They are yes and amen. They are complete and dependable. His sovereignty, as I say, is not meant to lull us into complacency like, hey, well, God's in control, so I can sit back. He's going to do whatever he wants anyway. It's meant to encourage us, as it was encouraging Israel in the midst of war, to stand up and fight courageously and with passion because God is for us. So who can be against us? We have nothing to lose if our desires are aligned to his. If our desires are for the house, or the car, or the schooling, then we suddenly have something to lose. But if our desires are aligned to Christ and his kingdom, we have nothing to lose. Lastly, then, a a word about endurance, because I think we've all all, uh, read parts of the book of Joshua, and um, there's something in there about endurance, Joshua makes this promise to his commanders. He allows them to share in the victory that, as I said, is ultimately God's. But even in this piece of text, there are hints of what is to come. Joshua will never, he will never stop fighting the enemy. They were not completely successful in routing the Amorites. Some escaped back to their cities. And even when Joshua starts handing out the inheritance later to the tribes of Israel, there is an understanding, there is knowledge that there's going to be ongoing skirmishes. So they'll, be, they'll have inherited the land of Israel, they'll be at rest in the land of Israel, but the enemy will constantly be there badgering them, and there'll be these little skirmishes going on. And it's the same for us. We need endurance And we need to stand on the promise of Christ as an encouragement which strengthens us when it seems that we're always at war with the enemy. We've inherited the promised land. Christ's victory is complete and certain. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. But until then, we must remain faithful. We must continue to lift our swords and we must continue to endure as we look forward to that wonderful day. Now, we may not be able to all preach so powerfully that we change a nation. We may not all be the foundation of a denomination. We may not all have the opportunity to make the queen cry. Maybe we don't want to do that. But we do all serve the same God as Joshua, as King David, as Paul as John Knox, and we are all, like them, called to fight for Christ's kingdom and for his glory. So my questions to you today are, 
Are you being obedient? Are you being obedient? Do you know God's word? So how do you know that you're being obedient? You need to know God's word to know. Are we allowing him to shape our desires so that they're aligned to his? Some practical ones. Are you tithing? Are you baptized? Do you observe communion regularly? My second question is, are we sharing the gospel? Not just being the gospel, but actually sharing that Jesus came to earth as a baby to become a sacrifice for sinful men and accept an unjust death in our place so that we could be permanently reconciled to God. I'd encourage you to hear the words of Joshua. Don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. The Lord has already won this victory. Now you go and take this victory. Hear me here. I'm not saying that we, we need to all kind of like bombastically run into situations and start preaching the gospel with people that don't know us from a bar of soap and um, have no idea why we have the right to speak to them in this way. I'm saying that when the opportunity comes with the people that you know and that you've earned the license to speak to, speak to them. Don't use that lame old excuse from a misquote of a guy and say, well, you know, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel by all means and only if necessary use words because they all come to Jesus just by seeing our actions. It's not, not going to happen. If you've never said to Jesus that I believe what I've heard about you and I, I, want, to, I want you to be my God and I, want you to, and I want to serve you, please rescue me from my sin, now's your chance. It's not enough to smell the sweet aroma of life. You need to go and accept that as well and enjoy what God has given you. If that's you, I'd encourage you at the end of the service to tell someone, let them pray with you. If you're going to stay at this church, get plugged into life groups and commit yourself to a lifestyle of commitment to Christ. Lastly, I know some of you are you're going through it. You're having a hard time. It feels like you're constantly struggling against the enemy and you, you need to hear from God that the victory is secure. Do not be discouraged. Worship team, guys, can you come up quickly? That would be great. Thank you. So let us be like John Knox. Let us be a people who have counted the cost and we've found the gospel worthy of our all. Let us be a people who stand up in Birmingham and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ without fear but as people who are at war with a vicious enemy. And honestly, he'd love it if we just shut up and let the lost and dying people, leave them alone. Leave those lost, dying people alone so that he can continue to ravage them and destroy their lives. Let us be strong in the face of opposition because we know our commanders will. And we've seen his victory and we know our inheritance and because we have allowed him to strip us 
of our worldly concerns and shape our desires. Let us be like John Knox, who would not rest until Scotland was free of the tyranny of Rome and the gospel was changing hearts, lives, and society. Let us be like that for our city, Birmingham, and beyond. So, Lord God, I want to thank you for, for your word. I want to thank you that it is living and breathing, that it is active, that it is effective in dividing between spirit and marrow. It's, it's effective in, 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 in understanding or, or just revealing to, to people what's inside them. It's like a mirror that exposes the things that we'd like to hide. Lord, I want to thank you for that because that's the beginning of the, ability, the opportunity to see you. When your word opens up our hearts and allows us to see inside, we realize how dark we really are and how desperately in need we are of you in our lives. So Lord God, as we stand knowing full well that you are victorious, that that these battles of Israel's are, are, are now a picture, an example for us of a, a much greater victory in a far more important war. We can see that you are victorious. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now that those words will become a reality which speak into our own life situations, into our own challenges, our own fears, our own Canaan, where we have to take the enemy. And Lord, that you'd minister to us as we worship you. Lord, we want to be obedient. Sometimes we just don't know what obedience looks like. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd open up your word to us. Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to our hearts. That you'd help us to submit and to yield ourselves to your will. And Lord, for those of us that are sitting in the meeting now and we know we're not your children, but we heard the gospel and we'd like to respond, Lord, I pray that you give us the boldness to respond, to say to you, yes, I see that you are truly who you say you are, that you are the God of creation that has come to make redemption for all of us that have fallen short of your holiness. And Lord, give us the boldness to share that with someone and to get tied into a church where we can learn more about you and about how we are to live. We ask that in your name. Amen. my life.